We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. The U.S. Constitution obligates our government to preserve and protect the rights that our founders recognize come from God our Creator, not our government. I believe that Scripture in the Bible is very clear that God is the one that raised up each of you and God has allowed us to be brought here to this specific moment in time. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Well, good morning and happy Friday. This week, a federal court ruling uh, that the Canadian government violated the basic civil rights of its citizens by invoking the Emergencies uh, Act there in Canada revives this question of the COVID response, uh, certainly for Canada. And there are those who are calling on Justin Trudeau to resign and uh, face accountability for how he completely botched and mishandled the entire COVID narrative. And of course, then uh, the light is also being shined on uh, on the COVID response here in the United States. And as we look forward to the general election, which this is going to be the longest general election cycle, I think, in uh, modern American history in terms of the primaries being all but over with Trump as the nominee, uh, he was pretty much effectively able to sidestep answering directly for Operation Warp Speed and uh, the vaccine rollout and some of these other questions that I think uh, voters rightly are asking. And so how is he going to answer, if at all, in the general election? Uh, What's going on? So to break this all down, I'm very excited to welcome in uh, my good friend Jay Bhattacharya, who is the professor of Stanford, uh, a professor at the Stanford School of Medicine and an epidemiologist. And you will also uh, recognize him for being part of um, the the pushback at the time in 2020 against the whole COVID narrative that the federal government was suggesting to the state. So, Jay, thanks so much uh, for joining us this morning. And your response first off to uh, what's going on in Canada and this federal court ruling. Great to be with you, Jenna. So the court ruling is really interesting because what happened in Canada was in 2021 when the vaccines came, Justin Trudeau was, if, if anything, the, among the most draconian uh, in, uh, rulers in the, in the world in implementing them. He made it so that you couldn't even travel within your own province if you're unvaccinated. It made it difficult for people to travel to their jobs. They couldn't leave the, leave the country uh, or, and reenter if they were unvaccinated. It was, it was a very, very difficult time. It's, basically, it violated the, the a basic civil right, which is the right to move um, uh, from place to place without without being interfered with, uh, of basically every Canadian citizen. What happened in response was a large group of truckers 
protested this movement, protested this restri- this restriction. They said, look, why are you making our lives more difficult, making the lives of Canadians more difficult? And they, they, they were successful. They, ha- they launched a nationwide protest that basically shook Canada and ended almost all of the uh, – uh, it ultimately resulted in ending all of these, these anti-scientific restrictions on uh, having to do with the vaccines and, and uh, the, the COVID restrictions. Um, but during the course of that protest, in order to deal with the protest, Justin Trudeau invoked something in Canada called the Emergencies Act. That is, it's, it's, it's almost, it's like martial law. It's not, I mean, it's not quite martial law, but it's close. It basically says these guys are, are outside the law, that you didn't even have to have a trial. And they froze the bank accounts of the leaders of the truckers' movement, threw a bunch of them in jail for, the, for, for having a protest. And if you looked at the protests themselves, they were like these joyous events with, you know, bouncy houses and kids and people dancing. It was like a, you know, like it, it, it actually was like a, it, it felt like a, 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 you know, kind of wholesome movement for trying to restore Canadian liberties. And yet you had this leader, this prime minister of Canada, essentially deciding that, that COVID was so important that he could violate the civil rights of these people. Uh, even as, even as he had earlier supported the BLM protests, so um, uh, what just happened, and then and then and then what happened, Virginia next was he then tried to uh, sort of whitewash it. He, he handpicked a set of people who were supposed to like review inside the government whether it was right to, to invoke the the, the, uh, the Emergencies Act, and they said, oh yes. Yesterday, what happened was a big deal. Was there was a federal court in Canada that said that this was illegal. That it was wrong and it violated civil rights. That there were other ways that they could have dealt with the, the protest that would have been lawful, but they instead destroyed. I mean, think about this. Can you can you imagine if an American decides uh, in, in the United States where some American decides that they don't like something the government does, organize a protest, and then the government makes it so that your bank account gets frozen. You can't you even access your bank account. That could happen in the U.S., right? It, it, but but uh, and it would be a big deal in Canada. That's exactly what they did. Um, and so now we have uh, a prime minister in Canada who, uh, by, by a court of law has found, has violated the basic civil rights of Canadians. I think he should resign, Jenna. Yeah, I, I do too. And I don't think that that's uh, likely, unfortunately, just because Canada uh, is, is so, in terms of their leadership and um, the people who are su- still supporting Justin Trudeau are still so far left. I mean, Canada is basically a cautionary tale at this point to the United States, because as you rightly point out, uh, Jay, that, that this could happen in the United States. And in fact, if the Biden administration had gotten their way and Anthony Fauci, even under the Trump administration, had gotten his way, then we would have been exactly in the same scenario under our own Emergency Powers Act with uh, governors like Gavin Newsom and Whitmer and and former um, Governor Cuomo up in New York. I mean, these types of things are... Um, are really dangerous to civil liberties and basic rights and freedoms uh, that we should all be very concerned about in Canada and in the United States. And so looking back um, to the COVID pandemic, I kind of want to go back a little bit. And um, you joined me on my podcast back, I think it was uh, last summer, um, kind of the end of summer. And for listeners who didn't listen to that, uh, we did uh, over an hour uh, with Dr. Bhattacharya and I on uh, thejennaellisshow.com. We stream that podcast on um, X, or formerly known as Twitter. This single episode has now been streamed close to a million and a half times, 1.5 million. This is the top rated show that I've ever done because what you said is so fundamentally important 
about the truth of the COVID narrative. So let's go back um, to 2020 and what you were seeing compared to what Dr. Fauci and some of the other people in the United States and across the world were saying. Sure, Jenna. So in, in 2020, when uh, COVID first started in uh, you know early 2020, there were a lot of a lot of uncertainty. There was debates inside the government and outside the government and among scientists about what what best to do about it. There were two key facts that became very clear very early on. Uh, one was that there was a very large gradient in the risk of dying from COVID. Young people had vanishingly small. Th- risk of dying. You know, you, you, for, for babies and children, it was, you know, the flu was worse. And for older people, it was much, much higher. The, the, so, so there's this big gradient in risk, depending on your age. The second thing that was clear was that the, the, some of the, the, the kinds of policies that were being considered, these lockdown stay-at-home orders, close, stay, you know, closures of businesses, schools, all, all the rest of it, was, uh, was going to be tremendously damaging. It's, so the, the debate that was happening inside the, go, inside the government was, well, should, uh, should we lock down? Should we, should we do what China did and lock down? Or should we have a more measured response that focuses protection on, on vulnerable older people? The Trump administration, it, they, I think, was partly divided around this early on. But in March of 2020, middle of March 2020, President Trump I, I got – Essentially signed off on the lockdown. Uh, I, I think. I mean, I, you can you can say uh, that he likely did it reluctantly. I, I spoke with him personally at one point uh, in summer 2020 in the Oval Office uh, at his invitation, and uh, he he. I think. I, I just if I had to be be like to characterize it, he 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 was somewhat re- regretful that he'd locked down. He was it was rueful that he had to, that he'd locked down, but he viewed it as a as the right thing to do because. He thought it would save two million lives. The problem is, Jenna, is that, that that action did not save two million lives. The lockdowns actually probably cost more lives than they saved. Um, you know, you you heard President Trump himself would say, "Well, we, the cure can't be worse than the disease." And you know, of course, to his credit, he brought in Dr. Scott Atlas, who advised him against locking down, uh, against closing schools in the in the fall of 2020. Uh, advised him to to lift lift a lot of the restrictions, or at least you know, remove the emergency declarations that would allow him to, that allowed state governors to do the kind of draconian things that they did. Um, but he also kept in place people like Tony Fauci. And on the last day of, of his presidency, he gave Tony Fauci an award uh, for his work on Operation Warp Speed. He, uh, he allowed there to be this ambiguity inside the government that savvy political bureaucratic actors like Tony Fauci took advantage of. They got their way with the lockdowns, um, and it was with President Trump at the helm. Um, so it's a very mixed record, I'd say, for how President Trump did in 2020 when he had control over policy. He permitted people like Tony Fauci effectively to be the, uh, the, the, the deciders of what federal policy regarding the lockdowns, lockdowns and, and uh, COVID was. And uh, many, many governors, including my governor in the state of California, used that power to implement uh, school closures, to close businesses, to close churches, uh, to essentially violate, again, civil liberties of Americans everywhere, um, with very basically no nothing to show for it. The all-cause excess mortality, after you adjust for the age of the population in Florida, which is much more open uh, during the pandemic, is lower than California since the start. They did, 
the Florida protected human life better than California despite the lockdowns. And, I mean, President Trump, I think, needs to address this complicated legacy. During the, during the, uh, the, the, the primary campaign we've seen, he basically avoided these questions and tried to pretend like he, he did everything right. But he, but he didn't do everything right. I mean, you may like President Trump or not like President Trump, but we have to be honest about what, what, what was good and what was bad during his, during his term. And I think I don't see how it's possible to evaluate him without doing a real honest uh, evaluation of what happened in 2020. And and I would agree with that completely. Um, I'm speaking with Jay Bhattacharya, who is a professor of, at uh, Stanford School of Medicine and an epidemiologist, and of course um, has some very interesting and important insights into the Operation Warp Speed response. And and of course, um, you know, hindsight is 2020, and and I always think that's such an interesting catchphrase now um, in light of this being the year 2020 that we're talking about. And I think rightly um, looking back. We can say, okay, um, in the moment, did President Trump actually do what he thought was right? Or um, could he go back now and say, well, you know, in, in the moment, I, I made the best decision, but I, I should have done something else. And and obviously, nobody is going to be perfect. I think that uh, Governor DeSantis, for example, um, had a very open and honest response to this, saying, we've learned from this. Um, we know what went what right and what went wrong. And here's for the future what policy should be. And I think if President Trump addressed that more directly, then people would give him, by and large, um, grace for that. Because we all remember what it was like not really knowing what was going on, what to trust in 2020. And even though the buck stops with him and he you know, was the president at the time and the leader of the free world, um, he he still needs to take responsibility for that, but also say, you know, we've learned from that and can move forward. And I think that would go a really long way with some of the base, especially people who like, for example, what R.F. Kennedy Jr. is, is saying about the COVID response and being uh, very open about medical freedom and is really advocating for that. Um, so what, in your view, did go wrong and what should Trump be open about in order to win over um, some of these people that, that, frankly, he needs in terms of voters uh, to win a general election? I mean, I think uh, the reason I am concerned about this is not even the politics, Jenna, because, I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm primarily a scientist. I don't really care so much about politics as I do care about epidemiology, public health, and public policy. Um, and so, for me, the key thing is the kinds of powers that were wielded during the pandemic and the decision-making processes were fundamentally broken. They, they put in place uh, powers in the hands of people like Tony Fauci. In fact, Tony Fauci himself had, tre- had the tremendous ability to set uh, policy for in a wide swath of things, ranging from education to, to, to business to, 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 to government spending and to trillions. I mean, his advice was followed all the way across. Now, the question then is, in my mind, is how do you reform the system so that that kind of concentrated power never again lands in the hands of a very small group of powerful scientists who are entirely unaccountable? And the political leaders like President Trump need to answer how they plan to reform our systems so that that doesn't happen again. Because it's clear, for instance, from 2020, the less, one lesson to be learned is that, that a political leader like President Trump, uh, if you ask them, it, it, feel, it seems like they would say things like things were out of our control. But, of course, he's the President of the United States. 
Um, now, I can understand in early 2020, there's a lot of confusion, as I said, and there's a lot of, like, difficulty fighting. I think the key thing, though, then, was, was in the middle of 2020 when he started to say, okay, well, we need to change our policies. Why was he unable to do so? Like, he brings in Scott Atlas, but then doesn't, doesn't follow through with the advice that Scott gave him um, to, to, you know, to make sure the schools opened in the fall of 2020, for instance, everywhere. Like, he had powers as a president that could have forced that, but he didn't use them. Um, so what I would like to see is a, a, uh, a proposal for a set of reforms. First, an honest evaluation of, of the, what, what happened during the, the, during the, the pandemic, and then uh, and a set of proposals for reforms to our federal agencies like the NIH, the CDC, the FDA, so that the kinds of basically autocratic powers they wielded during the pandemic can never be wielded again. Just we have to take those kinds of powers away from them and put uh, in place a, a something that's much more American in, in spirit, which is this idea of checks and balances, that if you're going to have that kind of power, there may be other people with, with oversight over it so that in real time they can say they can check you and see if you're doing the right thing or not. Um, right now, it's very clear from what happened in 2020, the American system doesn't have that. And so what I'd love to see from President Trump um, from President Biden, from any, uh, from, for, uh, and I think you're right, RFK Jr. has been pretty good on this, uh, is a set of concrete alternatives, uh, uh, concrete reforms, a proposal that acknowledges that these mistakes were contrary to the American, uh, to, to the American system of government and, and, that, uh, and that puts in place a uh, system so that it doesn't happen again. And, and that makes so much sense uh, because w- when we saw how the governors in states like yours in California were able to successfully harness and weaponize the power of um, these emergency acts uh, in their states and the federal government just uh, not only went along with it, but actually enabled that and emboldened that, um, we're seeing how much the, truly the deep state, as President Trump rightly calls it, are, are ones that are really running policy in America instead of the elected political leaders that are supposed to represent and be accountable directly to voters. And so um, we, we only have about two minutes left in this segment. But in terms of those types of proposals, can President Trump do that? Um, and, and I know this is more of a political question, but can he actually do that in a way that wouldn't undermine him against Joe Biden and the Democrats, who, of course, are for all of these uh, these COVID policies and to say, well, their entire platform is the government knows better than you. Uh, so, yeah, the answer, I think the answer is yes to, to that question. I mean, I, I, I don't I, I shouldn't enter. I don't. I, <laughs> Jen, I'm not good at politics. So please don't uh, d- 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 don't hold it against me when I get this wrong. But if I don't get the, if I get this wrong, but I don't I don't see why it would be a political non-starter to say we need to reform the FDA so that it does better. We need to reform the CDC and give concrete proposals so that these the powers, the unaccountable powers they had, uh, d- they don't have anymore. I think that would be popular with Democrats because their kids were harm, harmed by school closures too. Their small businesses were closed too. That for no for no purpose. Uh, they also felt the the, uh, the the sting of losing civil liberties. I think that every American, Democrat or Republican, would get behind a candidate that honest that, that that could honestly say, "Here's what we did wrong, and here's what we're going to do to fix it." I see no reason why that should ought to be a political liability in either Republican or Democratic Party. And unfortunately, you're absolutely right. I don't see any any impetus um, with Joe Biden to do that at this point, although I wish there were. I wish this were not a po- political issue at all, Jenna. I really, because mm. this is an issue of public health ought to transcend politics. Yeah, and it's, it is really unfortunate how the best policy 
becomes so political because you have such a divided view and such a big contrast between the two political parties that on one hand, um, the, the Democrats are rapidly escalating toward uh, complete control and globalism and totalitarianism. And then you have um, the Republicans by contrast, but then not really necessarily doing what they need to do oftentimes to appeal to the moderates, the independents, and like you mentioned, the disaffected Democrats that, that don't like what Joe Biden has done don't like that type of control. So I see this as being completely in President Trump's benefit to do exactly what you're suggesting, uh, Jay, and not just for political reasons, but because it's the right thing and the constitutional thing to do. So we'll be right back with more with our friend, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, when we return here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. If you're like most of us, you're paying way too much for healthcare. That's why I want to tell you about a ministry that has been meeting the healthcare needs of hundreds of thousands of Christians, and that's Christian Healthcare Ministries, chministries.org. Christian Healthcare Ministries is cost sharing made easy. For over 40 years, this unique model has allowed believers to choose their own doctors without worrying about networks or waiting periods, since they are not insurance, but a faith-based alternative to insurance. Members not only get advanced from the affordability, flexibility, and reliability of CHM, but they also receive access to 24-7 telehealth services at no additional cost. It's no surprise that doctors across the country appreciate working with CHM, and so will you. It all starts with a visit to chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR. Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest-serving health share ministry, serving all 50 states. Share the good news with a friend, too. chministries.com slash AFR. Make the switch today with anytime enrollment. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back. And we are talking about the COVID accountability that is potentially finally happening, at least uh, in it's out of some courts. We got a little bit of it here in the United States. And I'm personally convinced that uh, when the Supreme Court said no to the OSHA mandate and said no, the federal government uh, cannot require em- uh, employers over 100 people or more to forcibly compel um, the COVID quote unquote vaccine. Uh, and, and and that's, you know, not something that is constitutional. Um, I, I am convinced that it, had it not been for that decision, the Biden administration would still be telling us that we're in the midst of the worst, you know, summer and winters of death and, and this whole COVID nonsense. Um, and out of Canada just this week, uh, there has been some accountability for Justin Trudeau. And uh, we're talking about that with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who is a professor at Stanford School of Medicine and an epidemiologist and uh, gave some really good advice to former President Trump during 2020 and uh, the entire COVID narrative. And um, in the last segment, Dr. J, uh, you were talking about actual reforms to some of these deep state agencies that are unaccountable, um, unelected bureaucrats that are running policy for the country, even overriding what a president would have authority to do. And so let's kind of dig deeper a little bit into that. Because I think for most of our listeners, um, they understand that the COVID narrative was 
basically a, a hoax as far as what Dr. Fauci was presenting. He's even acknowledged in testimony that this whole six foot social distancing thing was totally made up. Um, we're seeing that there's not a ton of accountability for him. Hopefully there will be more accountability down the road. We'll see. Um, but in terms of of what can actually be done to reform these agencies, some would suggest that it's too far gone and these institutions just need to be disbanded and, and basically raised to the ground and then rebuilt. Um, what in your view and in your expertise from a uh, just a, a public safety and constitutional standpoint to protect liberty, what's the best path forward from a policy perspective? I mean, so I think the, the different agencies have different answers because they have different uh, structures and, and, uh, and purposes, and uh, the problems there are different in each. So, for instance, the FDA is a good example of this. The FDA, uh, I, I, you know, I, I think most Americans would agree that it's important to have drugs, when we take drugs, that, that we know that they're safe. That we know that 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 if a manufacturer says that it does this, then it actually has some good evidence that it does this, whatever this is. Um, during the pandemic, what happened was that the FDA moved away, very very far away from that basic commitment, that the basic mission statement. And I think the fundamental reason is that uh, that that they, they normally, at least in principle, in, in their mission, ought to be independent of the industries that they regulate. But they were not. What you have at the FDA is a is sort of a a, a, a captured agency, an agency where the, the the industry they're supposed to regulate essentially writes the writes the decisions, especially with respect to the COVID vaccines, that's been the case. And as a result, the American people are not confident that the that the decisions made by the FDA regarding the vaccines, the, the pronouncements regarding the, especially the boosters, uh, are, uh, are are right. And you can see in, in how they're they're, they're walking, they're they're, they're 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 making decisions. You can see the decisions they're making. The uptake of the boosters is is abysmally low, despite what the FDA says about them. And you know. I mean, the key thing there is that that lack of trust is a signal that the mission that the agency has failed. We need rules to make sure that that the FDA employees and the heads of the FDA are not connected to the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, that's and again, this is one of these things where, like, it just I think everyone who's Republican Democrat ought to agree. It doesn't make sense to have uh, the pharmaceutical industry have so. Much. We need fund the right now. The funding for the, for the FDA, a very large fraction of it actually comes from the pharmaceutical industry. Well, that's a law that needs to be changed. The doctor permit that. It should be an independent agency. Uh, the CDC is a, another another agency where I think it fundamentally failed. Um, it was supposed to actually be. If you look through some of the decisions that CDC made, they embraced ideas that had absolutely no basis in the science. You mentioned one, which is the six-foot distancing. It sounds like a small thing, but if you remember, like it basically would told everyone in the country that we should treat each other like biohazards instead of instead of our love our neighbor. It's like we should shun our neighbor was essentially what the CDC told us to do with that six-foot rule. And it ended up closing schools. You can't have uh, classrooms with 25 people and then put desks six feet away and actually have in-person school. That rule, which had no science behind it, actually resulted in our kids being robbed of an education. Uh, An agency like that that's supposed to be reflecting scientific evidence but instead, instead of reflecting absolute nonsense, well, there's something fundamentally wrong with the structure of that agency. 
and it needs it needs more transparency and oversight. It's very very difficult if you to to understand if you're an American what how they made their decisions. Even if you're a scientist, how they make their decisions. They have a journal where they basically it's a propaganda outlet rather than a peer reviewed uh, on a scientific journal. So that agency I think needs fundamental transformation. I think the key idea there is is transparency. They need to be radically open to how they make their decisions and radically open to uh, outside scientific advice and oversight because right now the scientific uh, it, it's very hard to trust almost anything that comes out of the CDC because of how they perform during the pandemic. And then finally, the NIH, the key problem there is concentration of power in the hands of a very few people, people like Tony Fauci or his boss, Francis Collins. They decided that they knew what the science was. Most famously, you had someone like Tony Fauci get on TV and say, if you question me, you're not simply questioning a man, you're questioning science itself. A person with that kind of hubris should not be anywhere near to have the kind of power that he had during the pandemic. And so we need to, need to have a... Um, a reform of the NIH that breaks up that kind of concentrated power. Essentially, the, the key thing is competition. Add, make, make there be many, many more people uh, who, are, who, have, uh, who compete with each other over the science, science in, inside the NIH, rather than putting the, the, the power in the hands of a very, very small group of unelected bureaucrats like Tony Fauci. Really well said, and and all of that is very sound advice. I'm talking with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who is a professor at the Stanford School of Medicine and an epidemiologist, and of course was uh, giving President Trump good advice during the uh, COVID pandemic narrative. And um, and, and if all of those suggestions, um, transparency, accountability, changing the rules, ensuring there's not a concentration of power, um, ensuring that we don't have people with that kind of hubris um, in power, and also just the fact that the government was trying to tell every single individual that the exact same analysis applied to everyone and that we couldn't make our own decisions. Um, I mean, for example, even with all of the ridiculous social distancing and the masks uh, that were enforced on airplanes, they, I mean, I flew during the the COVID uh, 2020 years, you know, back and forth from D.C. to California. So at the time I was representing um, Pastor John MacArthur, Grace Community Church, during the whole ridiculous um, church shutdown and the religious freedom issue. Um, but almost every weekend at, for months, I was going back and forth on planes from uh, D.C. to L.A. round trip, and and it, and it was so, and that was my choice, right? And and so for the government to tell individuals like parents, you, you were shutting down schools, you have no option but to choose what we are telling you and what we are prescribing for you. I think that is also a really big uh, part of all of this and fundamental freedom that for people who say, you know what, I'm not in some of these high risk categories uh, and even looking at the at the vaccine itself to say that somehow this was compelled, that everyone should take the vaccine and having the unknowns that outweighed the risk factors of, of taking this kind of novel mRNA technology vaccine. I mean, this to me is just mind blowing that the government in the United States of America thinks that it can make these types of decisions for everybody. I mean, the, the vaccine uh, rollout, it was, um, if, you, if you push this up back in, in time to, to like the early days, it was, when the vaccine first came out, there wasn't a, it wasn't a political issue. Basically, almost everyone thought it was, it was good, especially for older people, to take it because older people faced a high risk and we didn't know about the side effects. At the time, I was looking at the trials in December 2020 uh, and I recommended that uh, older people take it 
uh, voluntarily if they'd like, but that it not be recommended for younger people because we didn't know the side effects and risks. I was stunned when the first when the CDC started saying, well, we should we should make sure that babies get the vaccine on the basis of very very bad studies that didn't didn't actually show any real clinical benefit to children in terms of like reduced mortality, and where there was still a possibility of side effects. When new drugs are out, you learn about the side effects over time. So you want to be careful with it, especially for groups that don't benefit from it um, very much. So you so it, 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 so you have this like agency are arguing and the government arguing for uh, a, a, ignoring basic evidence and basic you know, benefit-harm kinds of ideas in recommending the, the vaccine. And then in the middle of 2021, uh, when it became clear that, even, that the vaccine doesn't stop you from getting or spreading COVID, um, the, the government, the Biden administration decided that they were going to double down with, that, with essentially with, with, uh, with vaccine coercion. They uh, pushed in place uh, vaccine mandates, as you said, the OSHA OSHA is, was a good uh, good example of this. OSHA is a, a federal agency that that, uh, that regulates you know safety uh, of workplaces. OSHA decided that every every company with more than you know I don't forget how many like 50 people had to have forced everyone in the company to take the vaccine. The Supreme Court ruled that was illegal. That um, the, uh, uh, they, 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 the they used uh, the kinds of coercion, like you're not allowed to go to public libraries or to public spaces. In New, in New York City, if you're, if, you're, uh, if you're not vaccinated, you couldn't go to a public library. Um, for, it, it, was, it was a coercive kind of way. It, that's really what it did, it violated medical ethics. People need to be able to make their own choices regarding uh, what, what goes in their bodies. That's a basic, you know, medical, that kind of autonomy is built into, in, built into medical ethics. People need to be informed about, uh, about, what, uh, about things that, they, that the doctors are offering them. You know, there's been principle informed consent. Every single one of those basic medical ethical principles was violated in the rollout of the in the rollout of the vaccine in 2021, and um, the kinds the, the people that made those decisions. Uh, well, I mean, I think we had, we have to hold them to account in the sense of like we have to evaluate what they did, and make sure that again that, that we put in place processes so that they don't have that kind of power again. I, I mean, I'm still stunned that it happened. I thought that those kinds of medical ethics. Um, ideas in medical ethics were fundamental, uh, that everyone agreed on it. Uh, to see that that, that was violated at such scale, um, well, I mean, it's just, it's, it, it, it breaks my heart given that, that I've been in this business for so long. Um, and I think we need to, like, figure out how to, how to tra- reform our system so it doesn't happen again. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I agree with you. I mean, I was shocked at the time to see people, even who I fully respect on a lot of other issues, um, I mean, legal advisors and, and people like, for example, um, Alan Dershowitz, who I've had on the show all the time, he was at the time saying, well, no, the federal government can you know, drag you down to the hospital and they can plunge a needle into your arm. And I'm going, what happened to the United States of America and to people who have been advocating for freedom? I mean, I disagree with a lot of his politics, but generally, um, He's he's sound on the Constitution, and and like you divide you know medical ethics from politics. Um, we as lawyers should divide the rule of law from politics, and not just favor a political outcome when it violates the rule of law in the Constitution. And so, in just the last couple of minutes I have with you, um, Jay Bhattacharya, and I so appreciate your your time this morning and your willingness to speak um, to this issue directly. How how can we have that type of accountability and and I think what's so frustrating for a lot of people who are seeing 
the COVID narrative just continue to go unabated and we're concerned, I'm concerned, that Democrats are going to and, and, and politicians are going to use emergency powers to implement things like their climate change agenda and other things. Um, without just going to the ballot box, how can we try to affect and implement some of these changes? Well, Jenna, I think the key thing is that these, these powers, the, the American political system, has the genius of it is that powers are distributed throughout the government. Uh, it's, as we saw during the pandemic, even the president himself can claim that he's, uh, the, you know, the, 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 that there are actors within the government that, that thwart him. Um, I think everywhere where 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 people have the opportunity to elect or or put forward people into power within government, we should be asking them: If another pandemic happens, what will you do? Will you do this? Will you will you keep my kids out of school? Will you shut my business down? What? Guarantee can I get from you? What process are you going to get from you that, that will make it so that, uh, that I can have some assurance that, uh, that the basic civil liberties that are, that are guaranteed to me in the Constitution and in the law will actually happen even during the middle of, a, of an emergency? That we can have free speech rights, that we can have this right to go to, 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 to worship, that we can have the right to run, run our businesses, that we can write to, to you know, travel from place to place. Um, that, that none of those rights, that I can have informed consent rights over what comes into my body. Uh, what can I, what, and, and every single politician from like dog catcher to president should be asked that question. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I hope that this is a bigger question on the general election stage. And I think, um, and this is why, frankly, you know, I know there's a lot of other things that I disagree with RFK Jr. on in terms of um, his stance on things like, like the life issues and, you know, some of those other uh, Democrat policies, but at least on the medical freedom issues, um, if there is a debate, and I'm not convinced, uh, like our, our good friend Steve Dace is not convinced that we're actually going to see a general election debate, um, that anyone, either Trump or Biden, will want to get on the stage, not only with each other, but also with RFK. But if that happens, I would love to see that happen, because I think his presence, RFK Jr., on the stage would... Uh, would necessarily require a response to this kind of thing. And I think that every candidate should be asked, especially president, but even legislators, like you were saying, Jay, in um, in the states. I mean, governors, all everybody all from the top all the way down needs to be asked, what do you think went wrong? What can we do? And what are you going to do about it to make sure that none of these emergency powers are ever violated in any way, shape, or form like what we saw uh, during 2020. So, um, Jay Bhattacharya, really appreciate your commentary. You can follow him at Dr. J, just the letter J, Bhattacharya on X, formerly known as Twitter. And we will be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Last year, because of you, Preborn's network of clinics saw over 58,000 babies saved. Thank you to all who made this possible. Let's celebrate these precious babies. 
Dominique really struggled with her faith when she found out she was pregnant. She didn't know how she could carry her baby to term, but she called on God for help and asked for a sign. That's when she ran into who she calls her guardian angel on the steps of the abortion clinic. This man told her there is a better way, and he walked her across the street to a preborn network clinic. When she saw her beautiful baby on ultrasound and realized that he was an actual person living inside of her, the answer became loud and clear. She chose life for her pregnancy. Precious son. Each of these babies are truly miraculous, and every day Preborn celebrates 200 miracles. $28 a month can be the difference between the life and the death of a child. When a mother meets her baby on ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection that doubles the baby's chance at life. Let's join together and help mothers choose life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby, or visit preborn.com. That's preborn.com speaking truth with love this is jenna ellis in the morning welcome back and the last two segments we were talking with dr jay Bhattacharya about the covid narrative and what needs to be reformed in terms of our deep state agencies that have way too much power to determine policy and to direct Uh, and infringe upon our freedoms as Americans. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, I did an entire hour podcast uh, back. It was it was last August. I went back and looked. Um, it was in August of uh, that would have been 2023. And so you can always find those at the Jenna Ellis Show dot com. It's on Salem Media and um, also you know Apple, Spotify, um, YouTube, Rumble, anywhere. You know we stream all of those. There's a video portion of it as well if you'd rather watch it on TV with your family. But um, that has been one of the most viral episodes, no pun intended, uh, because of how. Um, detailed, we actually got into what happened during the COVID narrative, um, why these governors harness the power of emergency powers acts and um, what the Operation Warp Speed did that they shouldn't have. Um, And Jay is just so brilliant in terms of his analysis. And I love that, you know, he really isn't political. This should be all about making sure that we follow our rule of law, we protect and preserve freedom and liberty in this country, and we learn from the past. I mean, I don't think anybody, um, certainly not me, going into February and March of 2020, and at the time I was working for President Trump on his uh, re-election campaign uh, as an advisor, and you know, I certainly didn't anticipate uh, what would ultimately become this ridiculous uh, COVID narrative from people like Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, and others, and to see what has come out of that whole disaster in the last couple of years, um, I frankly, just as an American and as a citizen um, and as someone who enjoys my freedom and liberty, um, I would like accountability for um, those bad actors uh, that, that were advising um, not just on television, but also advising uh, the Trump administration uh, wrongly and, and knowingly so. Um, I think we do need accountability. Um, but moving forward, you know, it's not just about past accountability. It's also about ensuring that this never happens again. And what we're seeing in terms of the potential for emergency powers to be abused and used for other types of so-called emergencies like 
a climate crisis narrative or like a social credit score, uh, those types of things are poised to happen. And, and I think regardless of the outcome of the 2024 presidential election, because we have so many of these deep state actors that have not been flushed out of the system, um, we need to, no matter you know who gets in office, um, and hopefully it will be the best conservative possible, um, we need to have this type of accountability, as Jay mentioned, and we need to ensure that that does not happen again, because the left uh, that runs the Democrat Party is trying intentionally to destroy America. And they're trying to do it from within. They're trying to do it from without. And right now, one of the biggest critical factors, um, not just reforming emergency powers and, and those kind of things, which is very important, but one of the biggest issues is this push for DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we're seeing that play out right now in the aviation industry. Um, this is a very critical issue that we can't ignore. And um, I just got a, a an alert, actually, as, as we're sitting here um, talking on this program from Reuters, um, aviation sector seeks urgent solutions for GPS interference. So the aviation industry will press regulators uh, this week for urgent action to help tackle GPS quote-unquote spoofing amid a surge in such activity which can send commercial airlines off course due to conflicts in Ukraine and the Middle East. So a couple of things here. Um, First of all, this whole a push for diversity, equity, and inclusion, how we're seeing um, some safety uh, regulations be undermined because of this DEI push. Obviously, in any industry, safety should be paramount over what somebody looks like or what background they have or what uh, sexual orientation they happen to prefer on any given day. I mean, it's utterly ridiculous that, that these airlines are hiring not on the basis of actual merit and talent, but on the basis of diversity. Now, can a, a you know a woman or anybody of any background be qualified? Absolutely. That, that's not the question. And I don't care who my pilot is. I care that they can take off, fly the plane, and land it safely. That that's just like a doctor. I don't care what a doctor's otherwise you know their their background, you know, their family love, any any of that stuff. I care that they are competent and they're proficient at what they need to do. So this whole push for DEI is rapidly increasing the the risk and safety of the airline industry. Um, and there are some, like my good friend James Lindsay, that are actually predicting a major airline disaster probably within this next year. Now, that's just a prediction. It could be wrong. But I think that that is definitely more likely than we've seen in the past because of all of these concerns. Now we're seeing you know, this GPS interference, um, some of these things. But I think what's so fascinating is also coupled along with this, the push specifically to have the aviation industry more risky. Why is the media covering this from, you know, Reuters, which is not necessarily conservative, to all of the conservative outlets? They're all pushing this. Well, I think that this is also in part a little bit of a psyop, because if we can diminish the demand for, or they, I should say, not we, but if if they can diminish the demand for aviation, for the aviation industry, and suppress uh, the ability and the availability 
for free movement and travel and quick movement throughout the United States and the world, then that just enables and makes so much easier this whole push for climate change. Because what is the biggest thing that we've heard from these climate change activists for the last 10 years? That jet fuel is is part of the worst carbon emissions as part of uh, you know the the entire push for global warming, and we're creating this big disaster. People shouldn't fly. So if they push by their own metric with DEI, they have this push to increase the risk so much that we will, of our own volition, choose not to assume that risk. Then they're getting what they want anyway, which is less freedom, less movement of travel, and less carbon emissions without even having to force that on us. So they're forcing it by making it so risky that we choose not to do it, which really makes me mad because the left is so savvy and so evil, quite frankly, that they're getting what they want by pushing this fear-driven narrative. So so what's the solution? I mean, are we just not going to fly anymore? I mean, I, I think that's a calculated risk that everyone should appreciate and should determine for themselves. Um, there was... Uh, an actor um, recently, a, a pretty prominent actor that said that based on the hiring practices of United Airlines specifically, he is telling his family that they will no longer fly on United Airlines. That's a calculation that he's made for himself. I don't know if, uh, and I believe that's Rob Schneider, and if, you know, and, and if they fly other airlines, he may choose to do that. Didn't indicate that, at least not in the article that I read about it and uh, and his statement. But that's, that's going to be a calculation that every family has to determine for themselves. What airline do you pick? It's not just going to now be based on financial reasons, convenience, connections, you know, some of those things, free bags on, on Southwest, uh, that, that we've traditionally made our choices in determining air travel. It's going to be genuinely a safety risk. And we should not stand for this. And what, what is Pete Buttigieg doing? The Secretary of Transportation, you know, what is the FAA doing about this? Well, they're just standing back and saying, hey, diversity, equity, and inclusion, we have to promote the LGBT agenda. This is ridiculous. And I'm wondering, why isn't Congress doing it about, anything about this? Why isn't, because this is a federal issue when you're dealing with the Federal Aviation Administration and you're dealing with federal safety practices, this becomes an issue that Congress really needs to inquire. Why are we allowing the safety risk to be so great that it's intentionally just playing into the hands of these climate activists. And it's actually having not only a significant impact on the liberty and the freedom of travel and uh, and the ability of people to, to get around the country quickly, which will then necessarily impact business. It will necessarily impact and influence the economy. But do you see how this works? It's never just what it appears to be. Because this whole airline industry safety concern that the media is now suddenly pressing, it is never that simple. There is always an underlying narrative and there is always a bigger issue and a bigger goal at play. And every single time for the left, I guarantee you it's going to be to infringe on your freedom more. It's going to be controlling you more. It will increase their power more. And it will be to destabilize our institutions in America, which include the family government, the church government, and the civil government. So we need to be savvy consumers of the news. We also need to be savvy decision makers. And more than anything, 
we need to be praying for our leaders to have courage to stand up to recognize all of this and to actually figure out the problem before we just play into the hands of the left. I'm Jenna Ellis. You can always reach me and my team, Jenna at AFR.net and make it a great day for the Lord this weekend. And I will see you Sunday in church. I want to thank my sponsors, Preborn and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Preborn Network Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day they save 200 babies' lives. But they can't do it without our help. Will you head over to preborn.com slash AFR and sponsor an ultrasound? Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest-serving health cost-sharing ministry, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. Make the switch today and start saving. Visit chministries.org/afr. That's chministries.org/afr.